Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This podcast is presented by Facebook, who are collaborating with the UK government and charities to support the pandemic response and limit the spread of misinformation. Only a small-minded Philistine, wrote the revolutionary historian Karl Marx, could regard 20 years as more than a day where major developments are concerned. Though these periods may be succeeded, he added, by days into which 20 years are compressed. There have only been a few such days in most of our lifetimes, singular moments when you really felt the world tilt and lurch on its axis and watched everything change in the most profound way. Those days when the events playing out on our TV screens have the unreal feeling of a scripted drama, of a far-fetched fantasy novel, or, in certain cases, a Hollywood disaster movie. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything. I heard first an explosion. Then all of a sudden, stuff just started falling, like bricks and paper and everything. Right. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. For all of us over the age of about 30, 9-11 was and will remain one of the pivotal news events of our lives. A day of unexpected and explosive violence, of geopolitical whirlwinds, of mass murder and suffering and loss. All of it played out on 24-hour news channels like nothing had ever before. The sense of shock and of powerlessness were the most palpable things. The 90s had promised certainty, security, hegemony, the end of history even. Now, for the first time since maybe the height of the Cold War, the West knew vulnerability once more. And this is often the point in the script where I try to throw in an insightful anecdote of my own. This is meant to be a podcast from an insider, after all. But I wasn't a journalist back in 2001. I wasn't in Westminster. I wasn't even that interested in the news, truth be told. I was a history student, on a train, headed to a football match, wondering why everyone's mobile phone had just started ringing at exactly the same time. I remember arriving in Liverpool knowing only that something had happened, something to do with planes and a building in America. There was no internet on mobile phones back then. I'm not sure I owned one anyway. And I remember jogging around the city centre streets looking for a guy selling copies of the evening paper in an effort to find out what had gone on. Jets attack skyscrapers, said the Echo simple, single-deck headline. I've still got my copy at home somewhere. I met my dad near his office, as planned, and we headed straight to a nearby bar with big screens showing Sky News. You're witnessing probably one of the worst terrorist attacks in history. It happened just over an hour ago. Two planes deliberately slammed into the World Trade Center Twin Towers in New York. There are 110 stories high. 50,000 people work there. It happened at 9 o'clock this morning. Just a short time ago, one of those towers collapsed. From memory, when we arrived in that bar, one tower had already fallen, and the second looked certain to follow. Many of the images have stayed with me down the years. 
Just watching it back now, researching this episode, even 20 years later, my heart races as the footage begins to roll. There's nothing unusual about any of this. Every person old enough to remember 9-11 has their own such story to tell. You were probably at work, or maybe at school, or in the car with the radio on. You're probably reliving the moment right now. You'll maybe even tell your own story to your friends or loved ones over the next few days. But what was it like to be working inside the British government on a day of such violence and drama and fear? How did our most senior officials cope with a crisis which tested them like few others? And how do they reflect on the fallout now, with 20 years distance from it all? I'll be speaking to a raft of the UK government's most senior officials from the time, both those at the heart of power in London. That was obviously the first reaction. Could there be copycat attacks? We've heard that the White House may evacuate. Should we evacuate number 10? What do we do? As well as UK officials caught up in the attacks in America. I was sitting in a window seat looking out over Manhattan and I looked down and saw a pillar of black smoke. My wife was sitting in the residence and she smelt the kerosene as the wind blew up from the Pentagon to where we were. And I'll be hearing direct from one of the journalists who broke the news, live on air, to a scarcely believing nation. My producer was chatting in my ear and then he said to me, ''Oh, a light plane apparently has hit the World Trade Centre.'' He said, don't know if we should go to it or whether we'll go to the sport and see how it develops. This podcast is not an attempt to re-evaluate the entire war on terror, nor to pick apart the rights and wrongs of conflicts in the Middle East. This is simply the government's key officials, in their own words, reliving every twist and turn of that shocking day and considering how the decisions they took look now, two decades on. So, from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week in a special edition of Westminster Insider, we're remembering 9-11 on its 20th anniversary and asking those who led Britain's response to reflect on one of the seismic events of our age. Let's kick off with an age-old cliché, because why not? It's true. The morning of Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001, really did dawn like any other. The weather was warm, the new parliamentary term was underway, and Westminster was bustling again after the quiet of August. Tony Blair, the Prime Minister, had a big afternoon ahead, his annual speech to the Trades Union Congress in Brighton. Any other Labour Prime Minister, three months into their second term, having secured another landslide victory, might have dreamed of a hero's welcome. But Blair being Blair, and the unions being the unions, this was pitched as an occasion for mutual loathing. Over in Sky News Studios in West London, star presenter Kay Burley was preparing to go on air, and Blair's speech was expected to dominate the afternoon. I was on air from midday. That was my normal shift. I'd convinced some of my colleagues to record some voiceovers, and we were making a CD for Harrow Police... They'd asked me to do it as a community service. Um, nothing out of the ordinary at all. I remember it being my colleague's birthday. We'd got a bit of a cake for him. And then we went on air. It wasn't in any way an unusual day at all. My producer was chatting in my ear. And then he said to me, Oh, a light plane apparently has hit one of the towers at the World Trade Centre. He said, 
don't know if we should go to it or whether we'll go to the sport and see how it develops. And they had traffic cameras that were focusing on the buildings. So we said, oh, we're just going to have a look at it and then maybe we'll go to the sport after that and then develop it from there. And as we trained the cameras to look at the buildings, I had said something along the lines of small planes hit the World Trade Centre. Now, some very, very sketchy details reaching us here at Sky Centre. Important enough to bring to you, though, at this early stage, we believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Centre in New York. That happened within the last few moments. No details at this stage as to what sort of plane it is. It could well be... A large plane. We are hearing reports of a 737 not yet confirmed um, yet, although it is a jet. Um, more as we have it. All of those sort of things that you sort of recite off the top of your head as much as you know. With Tony Blair away in Brighton, his top officials were getting on with day-to-day -day business in number 10. The morning of 9-11 was normal, perfectly normal. This is Blair's cabinet secretary, Richard Wilson, then the top civil servant in Whitehall, who regular listeners may recall talked us through some of this back in season one. I mean, it was just a normal morning. And I went for lunch with someone, you know, doing business. And when I got back into the car, my driver, Gary, said to me, someone's driven a plane into the World Trade Center towers. And I said, oh my goodness, I should think that's an amateur again, because there'd already been a plane that you may remember that had been over New York. He said, I'm not sure. So we, I said, let's get back to the office. Jonathan Powell, Blair's chief of staff and most senior political advisor, was inside number 10 and preparing for a meeting. Tony Blair had just gone down to Brighton and I was left alone. I was looking forward to a nice quiet day. Um, the first attack happened and I saw it on the TV screen opposite me. And at first people seemed to be suggesting it was a light aircraft and a, a horrible accident. I went into Tony's den because he was away and had a meeting with the former Finnish president, Marty Atasari. We'd um, asked him to inspect IRA weapons dumps as part of decommissioning. And the duty clerk, those are the people in Downing Street who sit by in a corner of the outer office 24 hours a day, came rushing in to say there'd been another plane crashing into the World Trade Centre. And I said, no, no, don't be silly. It's obviously just the TV are repeating the film. He said, no, no, it really is another attack. Sky News was actually showing live footage of the towers just as the second plane struck. Watching it back now, it's clear Kay Burley can barely believe what she's witnessing live on air. You're just joining us here at Sky Centre. You can see these pictures live from our colleagues in New York. A plane has hit the side of one of the twin towers at the World Trade Centre in New York. It happened on a clear day uh, where I believe from our colleagues that uh, many hundreds of people will already have been inside that building. Eyewitnesses say they saw a fireball during the impact, as you can see now, clouds and smoke billowing from the top of that building, 110 stories high. And as you can see, the pl I don't know if you just saw the plane flying. There's another by. explosion. Another plane. We just saw a plane flying by, waiting for it to come out of the other side of that building, and it didn't. Let's listen to our colleagues from New York. This has to be deliberate, folks. Well, that would begin to say that, yeah. We just saw on live television as a second plane flew into the second tower of the World Trade Center. Now, given what has been going on around the world, 
some of the key suspects come to mind, Osama bin Laden, who knows, who knows what? You're watching Sky News. Just a couple of moments ago, I was telling you about a plane that had collided with one of the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center in New York. We are hearing from our colleagues in New York that they fear that this is a terrorist attack. No confirmation what are you thinking at that moment as you're live on air watching these things happen? Well... I have open talk back, as I said, and my producer, there were a lot of expletives. And I'm, when things like that happen, I'm just a conduit. You know, people are processing their own emotions. They don't need to see me being anxious or concerned or whatever. They're just trying to process what's happening for them. And I know that Tony Blair and others were watching our coverage, along with lots of people in tall buildings at Canary Wharf and also the House of Commons, where they very quickly started to evacuate those buildings. Back in Westminster, Cabinet Secretary Richard Wilson was in a car and racing back to Downing Street. As we were driving, he turned on the radio. The second plane went into the tower and the phone went in the car and it was Jeremy Haywood saying, planes have been driven into the World Trade Centre. Jeremy Haywood was, at the time, the principal private secretary in Number 10. We'd heard that the White House may evacuate. Should we evacuate Number 10? What do we do? And I said, where would you evacuate to? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, probably there's quite a good rule not to evacuate until you know where you're going to. So I had an image of all the special advisors lining Whitehall with their laptops, waiting to be told where to go. That wouldn't be a good picture. So I said, let's have a meeting of Cobra. And I got back and we got hold of Mr Blair, who was about to go on the platform at the Trade Union Congress. Hunched in a small room at the top of the Grand Hotel in Brighton, Tony Blair was putting the final touches to what, at the time, seemed one of the trickier speeches he'd have to give that year. Elsewhere in the building, Blair's deputy spokesman, Godrich Smith, had been sitting, half-watching the news. As the footage from New York started to emerge, he called his boss, Alistair Campbell, into the room. Campbell swiftly returned to switch on Blair's own TV. Together, they watched the attacks unfold. I felt eerily calm... Blair records in his autobiography, despite being horrified at the devastation and aware this was not an ordinary event, but a world-changing one. Within a very short space of time, he goes on, I ordered my thoughts. We had to understand the scale of the challenge and rise to meet it. There was no other course, no other option, no alternative path. It was war. It had to be fought and won. Blair was immediately on the phone to his most senior officials back in number 10. Tony called up from Brighton asking whether or not he should do his speech. Chief of Staff Jonathan Powell. And we both agreed he, he shouldn't do his speech in these circumstances but should come back. As Bill has just informed you, there have been the most uh, terrible, shocking events taking place in the United States of America within the last hour or so, including two hijacked planes being flown deliberately into the World Trade Center. I'm afraid we can only imagine the terror and the carnage there. Delegates, I hope you will understand that I don't believe it would be appropriate to carry on the speech that I was going to give to you today. I know I have issued... The Cabinet Secretary, Richard Wilson, 
was also on the call to Tony Blair from London. His reaction was really interesting. He said, where's Bush? How's he going to react? He moved immediately, and I was impressed, to the big picture. Who did it? And how is Bush going to react? And how do we influence Bush so that he doesn't do anything stupid? And that was where he was immediately on the phone. I was completely at the other end of the spectrum, worrying about whether London was about to have similar incidents and what we should be doing to protect London. In my lovely private office, I drew up a very rapid meeting of Cobra at 4.30. As Blair rushed back from Brighton, his most senior officials, Wilson, Powell and Jeremy Haywood, took charge, initiating emergency measures to try and head off any domestic attacks. That was obviously the first reaction. Could there be copycat attacks? Jonathan Powell. So that's why we tried to get on to stopping all possibility of that. Because it wouldn't necessarily be a copycat attack of being an aeroplane. So you don't quite know what you're preparing yourselves against. But the police reinforced on the streets. A lot more police in Whitehall and places like that almost immediately. And is it difficult something like that happening with the Prime Minister not in the building, albeit only for a few hours? Uh, presumably, is there a bit of a vacuum there or does the machine just kick in? No, I mean, it's not a lot a Prime Minister can do in those circumstances in the immediate attack. I mean, it is about technical things like closing the airport and so on. And what's it like to be in in the centre of something like that? I mean, presumably you're running on sheer adrenaline, are you, at that point? Yeah, um, you don't get a lot of time to think. I remember I had two phones in my ears the whole time. It was sort of like one of those traders in, uh, in, in the movies about banks. The two of us, Jeremy and I, were just pulling every single lever we could think of all at the same time. And you don't really have a chance for the whole enormity of it to sink in. I mean, I think I realised it was pretty big, but I didn't perhaps realise quite how much it was going to change the world uh, in those moments. Westminster being Westminster, however, there is always an element of the thick of it even at a time of extreme global crisis. So many people were out of London that day. The Cabinet Secretary, Richard Wilson. The story is extraordinary. The um, new unit we'd set up for dealing with contingencies was up in Easy World in Yorkshire, bonding. Um, the overseas <laughs> Defence Secretariat were in a Sharabang just outside Heathrow on their way to go and see the SAS in Herefordshire where they're going to bond with them. I had to make the Sharabang <laughs> turn around. The person with the key to the tunnel, which was one means of escape, had gone on holiday and not told anyone where he'd left the key. Um, and when we got into my office and started ringing people up, the new switchboard had been installed that weekend and the switchboard went down. So I was reduced to having making my calls from an outside line. Always another rule of contingencies is always have an outside line that does not go through any switchboard. Because in the storm in 87, we were reduced to talking to the Home Office on a public telephone where they were feeding coins in, dealing with that crisis. He can smile about it now. But at the time, even Richard Wilson, one of the most experienced civil servants in government, was badly rattled. I was seriously alarmed. We had to find out where the Queen was, make sure she was safe, and members of the royal family. We had to find, make sure Parliament was all right, because I had images of a plane going to Big Ben and make sure that Parliament was evacuated. We had to make sure that Heathrow and Gatwick Ministry of um, Transport were marvellous. They got the security level up. There was a real worry about the City of London Airport because it was an obvious place to take off if you wanted to go into, into a, a, a tall building. Uh, and we took the decision um, to um, close it down. We sorted out the legal position later. And there were hundreds of things we had to do 
of that sort. Over at Sky Studios, Kay Burley knew she would now be on air for much of the day. I remember another plane hitting the Pentagon, then I remember another plane coming down in Shanksville, then I remember one tower collapsing, then I remember another tower collapsing, and then it was eight hours later. How hard is it to keep your emotions in check when you're seeing something on the scale and none of us had really seen before? It's almost unbelievable. You can't really process it. So what you do is talk over the pictures and just tell people what they're seeing. And we started to see buildings being evacuated, not only on the East Coast, but as I said, also here in the United Kingdom. And I, I thought by the end of the day, um, by the time I finished this sentence... Uh, it still it still makes me catch my breath when I think that almost 3,000 people went to work in the sunshine and never went home. Do they train you for big incidents like that? Do you Can anything prepare you to be speaking on air when one of the biggest events of the century is unfolding? My cabbie asked me that today because I'm going to New York for the 20th anniversary on Saturday. And I just went to have a COVID test, fly to New York. And my cabbie said, do they train you to do this? And I said, they don't, but you sort of build up your hours of experience. And a little bit before that, Diana had died and that announcement had happened while I was on air. And so you just almost revert to, okay, this is what I can see. This is what I'm going to tell you. This is what I know. I'm going to tell you again, I want you to be as calm as you can be as a viewer. So all I'm going to do is offer you the information as I know it. And presumably you're conscious that there'll be a huge amount of people watching you, far more than, you know, typically watch TV news of an afternoon, Mm. and that a lot of them will be scared. Mm. Are you conscious of the way your viewers are feeling as you're telling them? I think I am. I think I am. I think that's my job. I think my job is not to panic. In a crisis, if somebody's panicking and running around, though you're going to, everyone's going to get more panicky. Whereas if you were as calm as you can be, then people are just thinking, OK, we're watching this on the news. This is unfolding. We need to get out of this building as quickly as we can, but we need to not panic. And I think that's what a lot of the first responders did. I'm going to interview a guy called Joseph Pfeiffer later on, and he was the first fireman on the scene. He'd actually been downtown anyway, and they heard the roar of an engine. They looked up and they saw... The first plane hit the North Tower and he was calm because people were looking to him to see what reaction he would have. That's what we expect of our first responders and I think to a certain extent that's what we expect of our broadcasters. If you think about somebody like, I don't know, Walter Cronkite when he was talking about JFK being shot, you know, he didn't panic. He just told you the news as it was. I cried all the way home in the car sort of that release of emotion because I was on air for many, many hours, particularly when the South Tower collapsed because you didn't see it collapse to start with, but then there was suddenly this rubble and molten metal everywhere and these clouds of ash and smoke. And then half an hour later, the second tower collapsed and and it, it was just so shocking that I just... I just thought, just stay calm and, and, and keep it together. Coming up in part two, we'll be hearing from Tony Blair's top foreign policy advisor, David Manning, and his US ambassador, Christopher Mayer, who found themselves in New York and Washington at the very heart of the attacks. Stay with us. The pandemic has reinforced the importance of collaboration. 
Facebook has helped governments in more than 150 countries communicate public health messaging by providing more than £85 million in free advertising and training. The UK government and others around the world are using these free Facebook and Instagram ads to share authoritative, multilingual COVID-19 information. Get the full story at about.fb.com forward slash actions forward slash UK. So I was talking in part one about how pretty much everyone over a certain age has a where were you type story for the 9-11 attacks. Most of them are pretty mundane in the end, but they stick with you, these memories, for as long as you live. Anything but mundane, however, was the experience of David Manning, Tony Blair's brand new foreign policy advisor in number 10. He travelled to the US just a couple of days before 9-11 to meet his opposite number, Condoleezza Rice, and was flying over New York in a passenger aircraft when the first plane struck the Twin Towers just below. Well, I had been in the job, I suppose, maximum six weeks. I was in Washington and then in New York when this dreadful thing happened. I had gone to talk to Condoleezza Rice, who was the foreign policy national security advisor to President Bush. And I had flown over for my first essentially bilateral meeting with her in my new job a couple of days before 9-11 and had meetings with her at the White House. And then I actually stayed on a little bit longer than planned because Christopher Mayer, who is our ambassador in Washington, kindly suggested I should stay an extra evening and we could have a very small dinner together just talking through the agenda. Then tell us about your experience of the day itself. I had stayed over the night before and that meant flying up on the early aeroplane, the shuttle as it's known, from Washington to New York to catch a mid-morning flight to London. I was at the airport very early, probably about half past seven, and was told it was delayed. And I sat in the waiting area and saw people going past. Now I realise some people going past onto one of the planes that tragically was brought down by Al-Qaeda. Eventually the plane left rather late And we arrived over New York a little bit before nine o'clock. It was a small commuter plane and I was sitting in a window seat looking out over Manhattan. And I looked down and saw a pillar of black smoke. And I thought that's bizarre. And I suppose rather foolishly wondered, could there possibly be a power station on Manhattan? But anyway, we were being told to you know, fasten our seatbelts to get ready for landing. And we, when we landed, somebody met me from the United Airlines desk, I think it was, to say that the flight that I was about to catch to London was delayed because there'd been this terrible accident, as they still called it then, on one of the towers of the Trade Centre had been hit and I needed to go and wait in one of the waiting areas, which I did. By the time I got there, it was clear that this was no accident because the second plane had gone into the second tower. And I stood with other people, quite a large group of people in the airport. We were standing in this waiting area where those huge screens were up. And these dreadful pictures of these planes going into the two towers were repeated over and over again. 
we were there when suddenly it became clear that the towers were falling down and live on camera we saw the dreadful scenes as these great towers collapsed into themselves and left a plume of smoke which hung over the city it was, it was almost like a nuclear bomb a sort of mushroom cloud of, of dust and at that point somebody came to me from the ground staff of the airline and said well we've no idea what is happening we think there may be many more planes in the sky that are going to be used in this way to attack targets all we can do is tell you you must leave the airport because we think Kennedy Airport may be one of the targets and don't go to Manhattan do whatever you like but don't go to Manhattan above the skies back in Washington the very plane David Manning had watched being boarded as he'd waited at Dulles Airport that morning, United Airlines Flight 77 to Los Angeles, was now being hijacked. It will be ploughed straight into the Pentagon building, a short drive from the White House and the nerve centre of the US military establishment. Who knows what the death toll is going to ultimately uh, be. But it's Let me just interrupt you for one second. I'm so sorry. I just have to bring our viewers right up to date. No confirmation at this stage, but we believe there has been a third hijack of a jumbo jet. We also believe, though again, not confirmed, but there are reports of an explosion at the Pentagon. No confirmed confirmation of that at this stage but reports of an explosion at the pentagon this is this is almost surreal isn't it um an absolutely horrific day in in, in world history over in dc um, manning's dining partner from the previous night british ambassador christopher mayer was sitting in his embassy office just a few miles north of the pentagon when the third hijacked plane hit its target. My wife knew about the Pentagon attack because sitting, I was in the office, sealed off with soundproof, bulletproof windows, and she was sitting in the residence, which didn't have this stuff, and she heard it, and she smelt the kerosene drifting on the wind as the wind blew up from the Pentagon to where we were. We were worried there would be an attack because we had the vice president's residence right next door to us and we'd picked up something on our intelligence net that there might be an attack on Washington DC which is why suddenly we discovered that all the security around the embassy and its residents all the secret service cars patrols all that Washington police patrols everything disappeared and we were entirely unprotected that was quite a scary moment because they'd been taken away to go and look after people more important like senators and congressmen and, and taking them all to safety. And at that point, I took the decision to keep a, an inner core of people around me and no more than about half a dozen or so and send everybody home to their families. Back in New York, David Manning found himself stranded at JFK Airport with nowhere to stay and no means of communication with his colleagues back in London. It was chaotic in the sense that nobody knew exactly what to do, but there was no, there was no sense of immediate panic or, or breakdown of, um, of, of how to behave. People formed an orderly queue, which I joined, for a telephone which connected you to hotels around New York. And if you booked a room, they would send a car 
I thought I would join this line, a bit like a, a Russian shopper in Soviet times who just joined lines because you hoped something good was at the end of it, and found myself next to a young British couple, delightful couple, who had been on their honeymoon in South America and were coming back through North America. And after a bit, I said to them, I don't think we're going to find that when we get to the top of this queue, there are going to be any hotels sending limousines to pick people up from JFK at a, a time like this. Why don't we go and see if we can get a cab? So the three of us went outside and joined another queue. And then we agreed that we would ask him to drive around until he found a hotel that could take us. But obviously, as I say, not on Manhattan. And eventually we found a place in Queens, rather run-down place. It was clearly a place where you rented by the hour rather than uh, expected to go and stay. And the guy on duty was very surprised to see us. And anyway, he gave us our rooms and we were very lucky. They were the last two rooms. And then we spent this day in this hotel in a strange limbo, really, because there were no communications working. It was impossible to get an outside line or to use the then form of portable telephones that we had. And it was just a curious day of being right in the heart of the New York atrocity and yet, in a strange way, cut off from it. Just on a personal level, while you're trying to process what's happened and what you've seen, you know, you were in a plane yourself over New York at the time it was all happening. Was this this thing in your back of mind saying, you know, that could have been my plane? Oh, yes, I think certainly. I've often thought that. Of course it's in your mind. You think how extraordinary that I have seen this and I, I have escaped. Um, and you think about the randomness of it, the awfulness of it. And certainly when you hear the last messages on the mobile phones of some of the victims. Is, are they going to be able to get somebody up here? Of course, ma'am. We're coming up for you. Well, there's no one here yet and the floor is completely engulfed. We're on the floor and we can't breathe. Or you think about the people who are working in the Pentagon and suddenly it fell in on them. Or you're on an aeroplane and those brave people who brought it down. But you know in bringing it down you're going to kill yourself. I think, of course, you're bound to feel this could have been me. In London, a meeting of the UK government's Emergency Cobra Committee was already underway as Tony Blair raced back from Brighton. Ministers, officials from all over Whitehall were turning up. Cabinet Secretary Richard Wilson. We started the meeting getting the facts together and then when Mr Blair arrived, we told him our best judgment about intelligence of what was going on. And he again was all on to how do we deal with Mr. Bush? What do we say to him? What are the Americans going to do? Because Bush had disappeared at that moment. So there was a communication problem briefly, which we overcame. But that was the main focus. And we got together a very good response plan and briefing on the intelligence of what was behind the um, incident. And by the evening, we had a dossier for Mr. Blair on the Taliban and so on, very rapidly. And the following morning, we arranged an oral briefing for Mr. Blair, who is someone who takes things in much better through hearing and talking rather than through reading. And we got on top of our end of the situation. But for a few hours, when we didn't know what was going on, it was scary. As Richard Wilson had already recognised in that first phone call from Brighton, Blair was now very much in his element, the hand of history upon his shoulder and all that. 
I wish to think about Tony Blair that he really came awake when there was a crisis. Chief of Staff Jonathan Powell. He was very sort of steely as soon as a crisis like this came, came about. There's something he was sort of born for, if you like. So he immediately sort of started working out what the key issues were, what we could do, what we couldn't do, what he should say to people. And crucially, as a great communicator, because Bush was out of action, he was flying around the United States. And Tony went on to television and actually encapsulated it really very well. The solidarity with the United States, the need to take action. The full horror of what has happened in the United States earlier today is now becoming clearer. It is hard even to contemplate the utter carnage and terror which has engulfed so many innocent people. We've offered President Bush and the American people our solidarity, our profound sympathy and our prayers. This is not a battle between the United States of America and terrorism but between the free and democratic world and terrorism. We therefore here in Britain stand shoulder to shoulder with our American friends in this hour of tragedy and we, like them, will not rest until this evil is driven from our world. And Americans for many decades after that have been coming up to me and saying thank you for what Tony Blair did at that stage by getting a clear and calm message out to people. I think probably that was his single most important contribution on that day. By the evening of September the 11th, Blair's foreign policy advisor, David Manning, still stuck in New York, had finally managed to make contact with his colleagues back in the UK. I started to make communications again with people in the evening and I was able to let Downing Street know that I was alive and well and sitting in a motel in Queens. Uh, and I was able to get through to an old colleague and friend of mine, Jeremy Greenstock, who was our ambassador at the UN in New York. And he said that the following day he would get a car to me somehow or other and get me down to Washington. And he did as good as his word the following morning. Together with the honeymooners, we checked out of our motel. And they had some friends in one of the suburbs of New York. And I said we would drop them off, which we did. And there was still this appalling pall of smoke over Manhattan. As I say, it reminded me of pictures of Hiroshima or something after the bomb had been dropped. And having dropped them, I then went by car down to Washington. After his surreal 24 hours in a dodgy motel in Queens, Manning was now propelled straight back into the thick of it, a summit of the West's most senior intelligence officials at the CIA's headquarters. I joined a meeting that had just begun, chaired by George Tenet, the head of the CIA at Langley, which was a discussion between the American intelligence agencies and the British intelligence agencies, together with input from the military and so on, about what had happened and what our analysis was and what advice would be given to ministers about what to do. Because our, the heads of our intelligence services had been exceptionally allowed to fly in on a special flight to discuss all this with their American counterparts. 
because, of course, by this stage, I mean, as soon as the scale of the 9-11 attack was understood, the whole North American area had been closed down, so there were no flights. But this special flight was allowed in. And it was very clear, joining them, that the intelligence agencies were pretty certain that this would have been an al-Qaeda attack and that we would be looking for Osama bin Laden. They weren't 100% sure, but there was not much time spent trying to decide whether it might be anybody else. They were pretty clear in their own minds, so that's who it was. And at that very, very early stage, were they already talking about Afghanistan as being his likely location and what we might be able to do about that? Yes, I think they understood very early on it was we were dealing with Afghanistan. And the issue was, how did you or did you differentiate between the Taliban regime in Afghanistan and Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda? Because clearly the regime had given Osama bin Laden sanctuary, and it was from Afghanistan, they were pretty clear, that this series of atrocities had been planned. And the question was, what did you do about that? How did you try to deal with what was now seen as a very potent threat? There was no certainty other attacks weren't about to follow. And indeed, in the weeks after 9-11, when I would talk to Dr. Rice quite frequently over the phone, the Americans were very concerned that more of these attacks might be in the works. It wasn't seen as necessarily a one-off day of mayhem. It was seen as perhaps the precursor of a, a campaign that would destabilize many countries and affect many countries. That was really the situation when I flew back a day later to London and rejoined the team in number 10. In Downing Street, the biggest initial fear was of American overreaction. What we were worried about, I think, was that Bush might do what Clinton had done in the past, which was, as Bush put it to us when we finally got him on the phone the next day, pound sand. Jonathan Powell. Clinton had loosed off a number of uh, cruise missiles to hit training camps in Afghanistan. Of course, no one was there. So it was largely a symbolic response. We thought that might be what Bush would do. But he said, actually, he was not in a hurry to respond. He wanted to think, to take action and to move with uh, due deliberation. So our first concern wasn't realised. And Tony then wrote a long note to Bush that day after speaking to him on the phone, setting out what he thought Bush should do, that he should set an ultimatum to the Taliban, that he should tell them that unless they handed over Osama bin Laden, then they would be deposed. And then to work out what that would require, you'd require Pakistan to be on side, you'd need a, a broad international alliance, you'd need to reinforce the Northern Alliance, the forces on the ground. So he set all those ideas out to Bush. And then we spoke to him again a few days later. I was a bit worried, actually, at the time I wrote in my diary, he'd gone from being Mr. Floppy to being Rambo. Uh, and he started talking about bombing Iraq. And Tony Blair said, no, 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 let's focus on Afghanistan. David Manning says Blair realised instantly that the world had changed forever and that the nature of his premiership must change with it. I think looking back too, it's extraordinary how quickly Tony Blair understood that this was a threshold moment. This was a real shift. This wasn't just another crisis that was of a worse magnitude. It signified something new and something different. This attack on the American homeland, which was so shocking, which was being compared with Pearl Harbor, 
this sense that international terrorism had gone global and affected us all, I think persuaded him that this was a moment to realign countries behind a common determination to tackle terrorism and perhaps it could be a catalyst to tackle old problems again. For Blair, a couple of years short of his 50th birthday and at the very peak of his powers, being plunged into a crisis of this magnitude meant a chance to play the role of global statesman, something he clearly relished. And so I think what you got very quickly was the Prime Minister getting in touch with President Bush. Tony Blair is very keen that we should not rush into military action, but that there should be a a measured and steady process that can be developed over several weeks, several months. And there's no pushback from George Bush about this at all. At the same time, Tony Blair is very keen that the international community should come together in support of the United States. And it's worth remembering that NATO has only ever once invoked Article 5, which is the key article in its treaty, which says that all countries will support any other country that is attacked. And one of those strange historical quirks that it should be behind the United States that uh, all the other countries rallied rather than some rather weaker NATO member. And at the same time, he's very keen, Prime Minister, to ensure that this isn't turned into an anti-Muslim event, that this doesn't unleash a huge wave of hostility to the Islamic countries and, and to Islam itself. And the next few weeks and months, he spends an amazing amount of time in the air, traveling to countries to try and make sure there's an international consensus about how we deal with this new crisis. I'm sure you realized very quickly and very obviously that America was going to respond to this attack in an aggressive way in some form. And clearly Britain wanted to be supportive. Were there any private concerns or doubts within Downing Street or within the FCO about going into Afghanistan first in the way that we did? Or were we 100% believing this was definitely the right course of action? I don't think many people really thought that having allowed the Al-Qaeda network to develop like this, they were really likely to turn on them. So I think very early on, after the atrocities, it was understood there was going to have to be military action to deal with it. And there was a lot of apprehension about how to do that. Yes, Afghanistan is an extraordinarily difficult place to operate, as we see today. And you have to remember that you're coming into the winter. What was our access going to be? How are we going to get into Afghanistan? There were worries about what the impact would be of a military campaign to try and bring the Taliban down. Would there be a humanitarian crisis? Would there be massive famine? To what extent should we be working with the Northern Alliance? Could they take over Afghanistan? If they did, what sort of regime would that involve? So there are all sorts of dilemmas. I don't think anybody thought this was going to be easy, but I think the sense was this was such an egregious outrage. And this might also portend international terrorism, not just become having international scope and reach, but perhaps using weapons of mass destruction, that something had to be done about this. And that was the sort of mood at the time. As it turned out, of course, um, the Taliban fell much more quickly than 
we had expected. The Northern Alliance proved extraordinarily effective in coming down from Tajikistan and from the north and overthrowing the Taliban. And at the very time that I can remember talking to Dr. Rice and agreeing that we must urge the Northern Alliance not to allow there to be, you know, mass bloodshed in Kabul when they occupied it, they had already occupied it. Could you ever have dreamed that 20 years later we'd be seeing the final Western troops pulling out of there? No, I didn't expect that. Having said that, I thought once the deal was signed that the Americans were going to leave, it was very hard to see how you were going to produce a stable Afghanistan. But I didn't. I, I would not have expected that. It's very disappointing 20 years later to find ourselves, you know, back with the Taliban in power and uh, the efforts that have been made to reconstruct Afghanistan now in very serious doubt. What's your response to people that say that the way things have panned out the past few weeks and I guess 18 months shows the whole intervention was a mistake? Well, I don't think it was a mistake. It's easy easy to be wise now and say that this was a mistake. But I think you have to put yourself back in the atmosphere of 9-11. Here is what, it's not so much an ungoverned space, Afghanistan, but it's a hostile space. It seems to threaten, you know, on a very, very big scale to unleash terrorism around the world. And I think it's inconceivable that Western politicians could have said to their electorates, well, that's too bad, we're not going to do anything about this, it's too difficult. So I think there was bound to be a response. I think looking back now, the issues are, was it right to imagine that you could build some kind of Western democracy in Afghanistan? Because very soon after the Taliban are brought down and you have a new government in Kabul, There is what is known as the Bonn Conference and uh, a new Afghanistan is sketched out. But it's very much top down and imposed. And, you know, looking back, I think probably it would have been much more realistic to see Afghanistan as a a tribal confederation that you were going to have to work from the bottom up. And I think also there needs to be a recognition that if you do go in and you take this kind of action, and as I say, I don't think Western politicians had any option at the time. I think that was what public opinion wanted. And I actually think it was the right thing to do. But if you do it, you've got to have real strategic patience and you've got to work with the grain of the societies you're in rather than imagine that you can impose some kind of different blueprint upon them. I asked Jonathan Powell, who played such a key role in brokering peace in Northern Ireland, if he had any serious regrets about the decisions made in the aftermath of 9-11. Yeah, there's one big thing I think that we uh, clearly in retrospect made a mistake. And I'm to blame as much as anyone else for that since I was in government at the time. But in 2001, once the Taliban had uh, collapsed, and people forget they collapsed just as quickly as the Afghan government has just collapsed uh, under attack from the Taliban. When they collapsed, they actually sued for peace. They asked to be left alone, allowed to go back to their villages. They wanted to be involved in discussions about the future of the country. And I think the mistake we made, and this was a mistake made by the Americans, essentially, who decided they were going to go after the Taliban. They weren't going to have some sort of inclusive agreement. It was an agreement without the Taliban. 
And the trouble is the Taliban are not popular in Afghanistan, but there's a very conservative element to society in the south of the country who do have some sympathy for what the Taliban wanted to do. And without that inclusive settlement, we had a problem. We had opportunities to, to remedy that later. We could have had talks including the Taliban repeatedly after that and we kept missing that opportunity. I remember leaving government in 2007 and saying on the basis of my experience in Northern Ireland talking to the IRA that we should be talking to the Taliban and of course my former colleagues in government rubbished me. I remember Hillary Clinton at the time and the British government didn't want to open negotiations with people who had treated women so badly understandably but actually we were never going to settle Afghanistan down unless we'd had an inclusive peace settlement, which everyone was involved. The same thing we discovered in Northern Ireland. We kept trying to make peace without Sinn Féin, only work once we include Sinn Féin, as well as the others. Presumably, do you think that's a lesson that we can apply almost anywhere? I do. I think the big missing component from uh, the war on terror is the ability to talk to these groups. You know, in Northern Ireland, we fought them very effectively. We had very good intelligence apparatus. We uh, address many of the grievances that the IRA had been able to feed on, but we could never defeat them. We could control them, we could contain them, but we couldn't defeat them. And I think it's going to be the same problem in Nigeria, in Mali, in Somalia, where you have these groups in Yemen. Unless you find a way of engaging these groups, of bringing them in, of talking to them, I think it's unlikely we'll be able to suppress them purely by military means. Even if we look at ISIS in Iraq and Syria, it is true that we have driven them out of their territory by military force, but they haven't gone away. They're still there. They're regrouping, they're reforming, and we'll see them again, especially if we pull our troops out uh, prematurely. And my last question, you're in Downing Street for 10 years. That day, that was the pivotal moment, wasn't it? Everything changed from then, and it was almost before 9-11 and after 9-11 for Tony Blair and yourself. Yeah, I mean, there were other moments in Downing Street, like the Good Friday Agreement and like the St Andrews Agreement and Kosovo. So there were plenty of other memorable days. But if you want to look for a fulcrum point where things change, both politically, I guess, and for the world, actually, at large, yes, that's a, that's a day. It's, these things are much easier to identify in retrospect. You can see a, a pivotal point when you look back 20 years later. You don't necessarily appreciate it at the time. And it may be that what we're doing at the moment is living through another pivotal point where actually the US withdrawal from Afghanistan marks something much bigger that's happening, which may be what we've always expected, the end of the American century. It may not, but it, it may be when we look back in 20 years' time, this will mark the point where we say, well, that's when that happened. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. And why not have a look back through our past episodes covering everything from the history of pandemics to the art of political drinking. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. <laughs>